Section 16 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 6, On the Affinities and Genealogy of Man, Part 2. On the Birthplace and Antiquity of Man. We are naturally led to inquire, where was the birthplace of man at that stage of descent when our progenitors diverged from the Catarine stock? The fact that they belonged to this stock clearly shows that they inhabited the old world, but not Australia, nor any oceanic island, as we may infer from the laws of geographical distribution. In each great region of the world the living mammals are closely related to the extinct species of the same region. It is therefore probable that Africa was formerly inhabited by extinct apes closely allied to the gorilla and the chimpanzee, and as these two species are now man's nearest allies, it is somewhat more probable that our early progenitors lived on the African continent than elsewhere. But it is useless to speculate on this subject, for two or three anthropomorphous apes, one the Dryopithecus of Larte, nearly as large as a man, and closely allied to hylobates, existed in Europe during the Miocene age, and since so remote a period, the earth has certainly undergone many great revolutions, and there has been ample time for migration on the largest scale. At the period and place, whenever and wherever it was, when man first lost his hairy covering, he probably inhabited a hot country, a circumstance favorable for the frugiferous diet on which, judging from analogy, he subsisted. We are far from knowing how long ago it was when man first diverged from the Catarine stock, but it may have occurred at an epoch as remote as the Eocene period, for that the higher apes had diverged from the lower apes as early as the upper Miocene period is shown by the existence of the Dryopithecus. We are also quite ignorant at how rapid a rate organisms, whether high or low in the scale, may be modified under favorable circumstances. We know, however, that some have retained the same form during an enormous lapse of time. From what we see going on under domestication, we learn that some of the co-descendants of the same species may be not at all, some a little, and some greatly changed, all within the same period. Thus it may have been with man, who has undergone a great amount of modification in certain characters, in comparison with the higher apes. The great break in the organic chain between man and his nearest allies, which cannot be bridged over by any extinct or living species, has often been advanced as a grave objection to the belief that man is descended from some lower form. But this objection will not appear of much weight to those who, from general reasons, believe in the general principle of evolution. Breaks often occur in all parts of the series, some being wide, sharp, and defined, others less so in various degrees, as between the orang and its nearest allies, between the Tarsius and the other Lemuridae, between the elephant, and in a more striking manner between the Ornithorhynchus, or Echidna, and all other mammals. But these breaks depend merely on the number of related forms which have become extinct. At some future period, not very distant, as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man 
will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world at the same time the anthropomorphous apes as professor schaffhausen has remarked will no doubt be exterminated the break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state as we may hope even than the caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon instead of as now between the negro or australian and the gorilla with respect to the absence of fossil remains serving to connect man with his ape-like progenitors no one will lay much stress on this fact who reads sir c lyle's discussion where he shows that in all the vertebrate classes the discovery of fossil remains has been a very slow and fortuitous process nor should it be forgotten that those regions which are most likely to afford remains connecting man with some extinct ape-like creature have not as yet been searched by geologists lower stages in the genealogy of man we have seen that man appears to have diverged from the catarine or old world division of the simiadae after these had diverged from the new world division we will now endeavor to follow the remote traces of his genealogy trusting principally to the mutual affinities between the various classes and orders with some slight reference to the periods as far as ascertained of their successive appearance on the earth the lemuridae stand below and near to the simiadae and constitute a very distinct family of the primates or according to haeckel and others a distinct order this group is diversified and broken to an extraordinary degree and includes many aberrant forms it has therefore probably suffered much extinction most of the remnants survive on islands such as madagascar and the malayan archipelago where they have not been exposed to so severe a competition as they would have been on well-stocked continents this group likewise presents many gradations leading as huxley remarks insensibly from the crown and summit of the animal creation down to creatures from which there is but a step as it seems to the lowest smallest and least intelligent of the placental mammalia from these various considerations it is probable that the simiadae were originally developed from the progenitors of the existing lemuridae and these in their turn from forms standing very low in the mammalian series the marsupials stand in many important characters below the placental mammals they appeared at a much earlier geological period and their range was formerly much more extensive than at present hence the placentata are generally supposed to have been derived from the implacentata or marsupials not however from forms closely resembling the existing marsupials but from their early progenitors the monotremata are plainly allied to the marsupials forming a third and still lower division in the great mammalian series they are represented at the present day solely by the ornithorhynchus and echidna and these two forms may be safely considered as relics of a much larger group representatives of which have been preserved in australia through some favorable concurrence of circumstances the monotremata are eminently interesting as leading in several important points of structure towards the class of reptiles in attempting to trace the genealogy of the mammalia 
and therefore of man, lower down in the series, we become involved in greater and greater obscurity. But as a most capable judge, Mr. Parker has remarked, we have good reason to believe that no true bird or reptile intervenes in the direct line of descent. He who wishes to see what ingenuity and knowledge can effect may consult Professor Haeckel's works. Professor Huxley, in reviewing this latter work, says that he considers the phylum or lines of descent of the vertebrata to be admirably discussed by Haeckel, although he differs on some points. He expresses also his high estimate of the general tenor and spirit of the whole work. I will content myself with a few general remarks. Every evolutionist will admit that the five great vertebrate classes, namely mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fishes, are descended from some one prototype, for they have much in common, especially during their embryonic state. As the class of fishes is the most lowly organized and appeared before the others, we may conclude that all the members of the vertebrate kingdom are derived from some fish-like animal. The belief that animals so distinct as a monkey, an elephant, a hummingbird, a snake, a frog, and a fish, etc., could all have sprung from the same parents, will appear monstrous to those who have not attended to the recent progress of natural history. For this belief implies the former existence of links binding closely together all these forms, now so utterly unlike. Nevertheless, it is certain that groups of animals have existed, or do now exist, which serve to connect several of the great vertebrate classes more or less closely. We have seen that the ornithorhynchus graduates toward reptiles, and Professor Huxley has discovered, and is confirmed by Mr. Cope and others, that the dinosaurians are in many important characters intermediate between certain reptiles and certain birds, the birds referred to being the ostrich tribe, itself evidently a widely diffused remnant of a larger group, and the archaeopteryx, that strange secondary bird with a long lizard-like tail. Again, according to Professor Owen, the ichthyosaurians, great sea lizards, furnished with paddles, present many affinities with fishes, or rather, according to Huxley, with amphibians, a class which, including in its highest division frogs and toads, is plainly allied to the ganoid fishes. These latter fishes swarmed during the earlier geological periods, and were constructed on what is called a generalized type, that is, they presented diversified affinities with other groups of organisms. The lepidosiren is also so closely allied to amphibians and fishes, that naturalists long disputed in which of these two classes to rank it. It and also some few ganoid fishes have been preserved from utter extinction by inhabiting rivers which are harbors of refuge and are related to the great waters of the ocean in the same way that islands are to continents. Lastly, one single member of the immense and diversified class of fishes, namely the lancelet or amphioxus, is so different from all other fishes that Haeckel maintains that it ought to form a distinct class in the vertebrate kingdom. This fish is remarkable for its negative characters. It can hardly be said to possess a brain, vertebral column, or heart, etc., so that it was classed by the older naturalists amongst the worms. Many years ago, Professor Goodsir perceived that the lancelet presented some affinities with the ascidians which are invertebrate, 
hermaphrodite marine creatures permanently attached to a support they hardly appear like animals and consist of a simple tough leathery sack with two small projecting orifices they belong to the molluscoida of huxley a lower division of the great kingdom of the mollusca but they have recently been placed by some naturalists amongst the vermes or worms their larvae somewhat resemble tadpoles in shape and have the power of swimming freely about footnote at the falkland islands i had the satisfaction of seeing in april eighteen thirty three and therefore some years before any other naturalist the locomotive larvae of a compound ascidium closely allied to the sinoicum but apparently generically distinct from it the tail was about five times as long as the oblong head and terminated in a very fine filament it was as sketched by me under a simple microscope plainly divided by transverse opaque partitions which i presume represent the great cells figured by kovalevsky at an early stage of development the tail was closely coiled round the head of the larva End of footnote. mr kovalevsky has lately observed that the larvae of ascidians are related to the vertebrata in their manner of development in the relative position of the nervous system and in possessing a structure closely like the corda dorsalis of vertebrate animals and in this he has been since confirmed by professor kupfer m kovalevsky writes to me from naples that he has now carried these observations yet further and should his results be well established the whole will form a discovery of the very greatest value thus if we may rely on embryology ever the safest guide in classification it seems that we have at last gained a clue to the source whence the vertebrata were derived footnote i am bound to add that some competent judges dispute this conclusion for instance m giard in a series of papers in the archive de zoologie experimentale for eighteen seventy two nevertheless this naturalist remarks page two eighty one l'organisation de la lave acidienne en dehors de toute hypothèse et de toute théorie nous montre comment la nature peut produire la disposition fondamentale du type vertébré l'existence d'un corps dorsal chez un vertébré par la seule condition vitale de l'adaptation et ses simples possibilités du passage supprime l'abîme entre les deux surgénia encore bien qu'on ignore par où le passage s'est fait en réalité we should then be justified in believing that at an extremely remote period a group of animals existed resembling in many respects the larvae of our present ascidians which diverged into two great branches the one retrograding in development and producing the present class of ascidians the other rising to the crown and summit of the animal kingdom by giving birth to the vertebrata we have thus far endeavored rudely to trace the genealogy of the vertebrata by the aid of their mutual affinities we will now look to man as he exists and we shall i think be able partially to restore the structure of our early progenitors during successive periods but not in due order of time this can be effected by means of the rudiments 
which man still retains by the characters which occasionally make their appearance in him through reversion and by the aid of the principles of morphology and embryology the various facts to which i shall here allude have been given in the previous chapters the early progenitors of man must have been once covered with hair both sexes having beards their ears were probably pointed and capable of movement and their bodies were provided with a tail having the proper muscles their limbs and bodies were also acted on by many muscles which now only occasionally reappear but are normally present in the quadrumana at this or some earlier period the great artery and nerve of the humerus ran through a supracondyloid foramen the intestine gave forth a much larger diverticulum or cecum than that now existing the foot was then prehensile judging from the condition of the great toe in the fetus and our progenitors no doubt were arboreal in their habits and frequented some warm forest-clad land the males had great canine teeth which served them as formidable weapons at a much earlier period the uterus was double the excreta were voided through a cloaca and the eye was protected by a third eyelid or nictitating membrane at a still earlier period the progenitors of man must have been aquatic in their habits for morphology plainly tells us that our lungs consist of a modified swim bladder which once served as a float the clefts on the neck in the embryo of man show where the branchia once existed in the lunar or weekly recurrent periods of some of our functions we apparently still retain traces of our primordial birthplace a shore washed by the tides at about this same early period the true kidneys were replaced by the corpora wolfiana the heart existed as a simple pulsating vessel and the corda dorsalis took the place of a vertebral column these early ancestors of man thus seen in the dim recesses of time must have been as simply or even still more simply organized than the lancelet or amphioxus there is one other point deserving a fuller notice it has long been known that in the vertebrate kingdom one sex bears rudiments of various accessory parts appertaining to the reproductive system which properly belong to the opposite sex and it has now been ascertained that at a very early embryonic period both sexes possess true male and female glands hence some remote progenitor of the whole vertebrate kingdom appears to have been hermaphrodite or androgynous footnote this is the conclusion of professor gegenbauer one of the highest authorities in comparative anatomy the result has been arrived at chiefly from the study of the amphibia but it appears from the researches of waldayer that the sexual organs of even the higher vertebrata are in their early condition hermaphrodite similar views have long been held by some authors though until recently without a firm basis End of footnote. but here we encounter a singular difficulty in the mammalian class the males possess rudiments of a uterus with the adjacent passage in their vesiculae prostaticae they also bear rudiments of mammae and some male marsupials have traces of a marsupial sac footnote the male thalassinus offers the best instance End of footnote. other analogous facts could be added are we then to suppose that some extremely ancient mammal continued androgynous 
after it had acquired the chief distinctions of its class, and therefore after it had diverged from the lower classes of the vertebrate kingdom. This seems very improbable, for we have to look to fishes, the lowest of all the classes, to find any still existent androgynous forms. Footnote. Hermaphroditism has been observed in several species of Serranus, as well as in some other fishes, where it is either normal and symmetrical, or abnormal and unilateral. Dr. Zudovine has given me references on this subject, more especially to a paper by Professor Halbertsma in the Transactions of the Dutch Academy of Sciences, volume 16. Dr. Gunther doubts the fact, but it has now been recorded by too many good observers to be any longer disputed. Dr. M. Lesona writes to me that he has verified the observations made by Cavolini on Serranus. Professor Ercolani has recently shown that eels are androgynous. End of footnote. That various accessory parts proper to each sex are found in a rudimentary condition in the opposite sex may be explained by such organs having been gradually acquired by the one sex and then transmitted in a more or less imperfect state to the other. When we treat of sexual selection, we shall meet with innumerable instances of this form of transmission, as in the case of the spurs, plumes, and brilliant colors acquired for battle or ornament by male birds, and inherited by the females in an imperfect or rudimentary condition. The possession by male mammals of functionally imperfect mammary organs is in some respects especially curious. The monotremata have the proper milk-secreting glands with orifices, but no nipples, and as these animals stand at the very base of the mammalian series, it is probable that the progenitors of the class also had milk-secreting glands, but no nipples. This conclusion is supported by what is known of their manner of development, for Professor Turner informs me, on the authority of Kolliker and Langer, that in the embryo the mammary glands can be distinctly traced before the nipples are in the least visible, and the development of successive parts in the individual generally represents and accords with the development of successive beings in the same line of descent. The marsupials differ from the monotremata by possessing nipples, so that probably these organs were first acquired by the marsupials, after they had diverged from and risen above the monotremata, and were then transmitted to the placental mammals. Footnote. Professor Gegenbauer has shown that two distinct types of nipples prevail throughout the several mammalian orders, but that it is quite intelligible how both could have been derived from the nipples of the marsupials, and the latter from those of the monotremata. End of footnote. No one will suppose that the marsupials still remained androgynous after they had approximately acquired their present structure. How then are we to account for male mammals possessing mammae? It is possible that they were first developed in the females, and then transferred to the males, but from what follows this is hardly probable. It may be suggested, as another view, that long after the progenitors of the whole mammalian class had ceased to be androgynous, both sexes yielded milk, and thus nourished their young, and in the case of the marsupials, that both sexes carried their young in marsupial sacs. This will not appear altogether improbable, if we reflect that the males of existing signathus fishes 
receive the eggs of the females in their abdominal pouches, hatch them, and afterwards, as some believe, nourish the young. Footnote. Mr. Lockwood believes, from what he has observed of the development of hippocampus, that the walls of the abdominal pouch of the male in some way afford nourishment. On male fishes hatching the ova in their mouths, see a very interesting paper by Professor Wyman, Dr. Gunther has likewise described similar cases. End of footnote. That other certain male fishes hatch the eggs within their mouths, or branchial cavities. That certain male toads take the chaplets of eggs from the females, and wind them round their own thighs, keeping them there until the tadpoles are born, that certain male birds undertake the whole duty of incubation, and that male pigeons, as well as the females, feed their nestlings with the secretion from their crops. But the above suggestion first occurred to me from mammary glands of male mammals being so much more perfectly developed than the rudiments of the other accessory reproductive parts, which are found in the one sex, though proper to the other. The mammary glands and nipples, as they exist in male mammals, can indeed hardly be called rudimentary. They are merely not fully developed, and not functionally active. They are sympathetically affected under the influence of certain diseases, like the same organs in the female. They often secrete a few drops of milk at birth and at puberty. This latter fact occurred in the curious case, before referred to, where a young man possessed two pairs of mammae. In man and some other male mammals, these organs have been known occasionally to become so well developed during maturity as to yield a fair supply of milk. Now, if we suppose that during a former prolonged period, male mammals aided the females in nursing their offspring, and that afterwards from some cause, as from the production of a smaller number of young, the males ceased to give this aid, disuse of the organs during maturity would lead to their becoming inactive and from two well-known principles of inheritance. This state of inactivity would probably be transmitted to the males at the corresponding age of maturity, but at an earlier age these organs would be left unaffected, so that they would be almost equally well-developed in the young of both sexes. Conclusion Von Baer has defined advancement or progress in the organic scale better than anyone else as resting on the amount of differentiation and specialization of the several parts of a being, when arrived at maturity, as I should be inclined to add. Now, as organisms have become slowly adapted to diversified lines of life by means of natural selection, their parts will have become more and more differentiated and specialized for various functions, from the advantage gained by the division of physiological labor. The same part appears often to have been modified first for one purpose, and then long afterwards for some other, and quite distinct purpose, and thus all the parts are rendered more and more complex. But each organism still retains the general type of structure of the progenitor from which it was aboriginally derived. In accordance with this view, it seems, if we turn to geological evidence, that organization on the whole has advanced throughout the world by slow and interrupted steps. In the great kingdom of the vertebrata, it has culminated in man. It must not, however, be supposed that groups of organic beings are always supplanted and disappear as soon as they have given birth to other and more perfect groups. 
The latter, though victorious over their predecessors, may not have become better adapted for all places in the economy of nature. Some old forms appear to have survived from inhabiting protected sites where they have not been exposed to very severe competition, and these often aid us in constructing our genealogies by giving us a fair idea of former and lost populations. But we must not fall into the error of looking at the existing members of any lowly organized group as perfect representatives of their ancient predecessors. The most ancient progenitors in the kingdom of the vertebrata, at which we are able to obtain an obscure glance, apparently consisted of a group of marine animals resembling the larvae of existing ascidians. Footnote. The inhabitants of the seashore must be greatly affected by the tides. Animals living either about the mean high-water mark or about the mean low-water mark pass through a complete cycle of tidal changes in a fortnight. Consequently, their food supply will undergo marked changes week by week. The vital functions of such animals living under these conditions for many generations can hardly fail to run their course in regular weekly periods. Now it is a mysterious fact that in the higher and now terrestrial vertebrata, as well as in other classes, many normal and abnormal processes have one or more whole weeks as their periods. This would be rendered intelligible if the vertebrata were descended from an animal allied to the existing tidal ascidians. Many instances of such periodic processes might be given, as the gestation of mammals, the duration of fevers, etc. The hatching of eggs affords also a good example, for according to Mr. Bartlett, the eggs of the pigeon are hatched in two weeks, those of the fowl in three, those of the duck in four, those of the goose in five, and those of the ostrich in seven weeks. As far as we can judge, a recurrent period, if approximately of the right duration for any process or function, would not, when once gained, be liable to change. Consequently, it might be thus transmitted through almost any number of generations. But if the function changed, the period would have to change, and would be apt to change almost abruptly by a whole week. This conclusion, if sound, is highly remarkable, for the period of gestation in each mammal and the hatching of each bird's eggs, and many other vital processes, thus betray to us the primordial birthplace of these animals. End of footnote. These animals probably gave rise to a group of fishes, as lowly organized as the lancelet, and from these ganoids and other fishes, like the lepidosiren, must have been developed. From such fish a very small advance would carry us on to the amphibians. We have seen that birds and reptiles were once intimately connected together, and the monotremata now connect mammals with reptiles in a slight degree. But no one can at present say by what line of descent the three higher and related classes, namely mammals, birds, and reptiles, were derived from the two lower vertebrate classes, namely amphibians and fishes. In the class of mammals, the steps are not difficult to conceive, which led from the ancient monotremata to the ancient marsupials, and from these to the early progenitors of the placental mammals. We may thus ascend to the Lemuridae, and the interval is not very wide from these to the Simiidae. 
The Simiidae then branched off into two great stems, the New World and Old World monkeys, and from the latter, at a remote period, man, the wonder and glory of the universe proceeded. Thus we have given to man a pedigree of prodigious length, but not, it may be said, of noble quality. The world, it has often been remarked, appears as if it had long been preparing for the advent of man. And this, in one sense, is strictly true, for he owes his birth to a long line of progenitors. If any single link in this chain had never existed, man would not have been exactly what he is now. Unless we willfully close our eyes, we may, with our present knowledge, approximately recognize our parentage. Nor need we feel ashamed of it. The most humble organism is something much higher than the inorganic dust under our feet. And no one with an unbiased mind can study any living creature, however humble, without being struck with enthusiasm at its marvelous structure and properties. End of section 16